Well, today we conclude our teaching series, Book of Exodus, which has been called Redemption, the Gospel in the Book of Exodus. Over the last few months, we have been considering what this word redemption means and how it's significant to us. Of course, we've learned so far that the word redemption itself in the scriptures refers to the price that is paid to liberate someone or something from slavery. So that's been the theme of the last few months. We've been learning and we have seen how God redeemed the Israelites from slavery to Egypt and how that points to our redemption that Christ has accomplished for us and freed us from our slavery to sin. How it points to the cross of Christ. And my prayer has been that the word redemption would never be a hollow word because it's so easy to come to church and and to hear these big churchy words like redemption. And we think, oh, okay, great. I don't know what it means or why it matters. And it's so easy for us to not apply it and for to have no significance in our daily lives. But my prayer has been that through this series, as, as we've seen the story in the Exodus, and we conclude today, that the word has vibrant meaning, that it jumps off the page in full color, and that it would impact how you live your life every day, that it truly is significant for you. May we be defined by the word redemption. May we understand that we must not define ourselves by our appearance or by our income or by our nationality or by any socioeconomic standing, but that nothing would define who we are other than who we are in Christ and who are we. We are among God's redeemed. That's who you are. You don't define yourself by your temptations or by your failures. You define yourself by the gospel. You define yourself by redemption. You're bought by a price. You belong to God. He loves you. He has saved you. And so that is our identity. As we continue and then complete today, Exodus, our reminder from last week, what we read, what we talked about, is that Moses has spent 40 days on the top of Mount Sinai, where he was receiving instructions to build the tabernacle. You might recall a tabernacle was a special tent where God would dwell with his people in the middle of the camp. That was God's plan, to dwell with them. And while Moses was on the top of the mountain, For 40 days, receiving more of God's word, the Israelites were down at the foot of the mountain having a big party. And they had given their hearts to an idol, a golden idol that was shaped like a cow. And so we talked about the significance of that in our lives. And so let's continue reading and let's see how God responded to his people and their idolatry. Exodus 33, verses 1 through 7. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, 
And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Hebron onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And so how does God respond to idol worship? He says, I will not go up among you. He says, I will not go with you. And so how does God respond? He removes his presence. God does not go with those that are worshiping idols, those that have sinful, habitual, ongoing patterns of sin. He says, no, I, you will not have my presence. And so let, let me give you the main idea for chapter 33 and 34. We'll, we'll be in there. We're not going to read all of it. That's a bit long for one morning. But we will look at those two chapters and then wrap things up with the last chapter of Exodus. And so the main idea that governs all of these thoughts, and that will be the main idea for the sermon, is that God redeems his people so that they can experience his glorious presence. That's what God is doing, that he redeems his people for a reason, so that they, we, can experience his absolutely glorious presence. Our God in heaven has a plan, and his plan is to display the radiance, to display the brilliance and the magnitude of his infinite excellencies. That's what God does. He delights, he enjoys in revealing his infinite perfections. So God stands alone as a sovereign ruler. He stands alone as a creator. He stands alone as a king. And he displays, he reveals all that he is. And so his plan, his joy, is to reveal his splendor, to reveal his glory. That is what God does. But here's the question. What is a primary way that God displays his infinite glory? How does God do that? What is a primary way that he reveals how absolutely amazing he is? Redemption. That is how God reveals his glory, first and foremost, is through redemption. And so God reveals his glory by showing his grace, his mercy to save rebels that would commit adultery to him spiritually, showing mercy to save idol-worshiping sinners like you and me. By revealing his grace, he's revealing his glory. And so God's grace is the highest point. So his grace is the apex, the pinnacle of his glory. That's what it is. And so Jesus liberated the Israelites. He liberates us. God liberates us so that we can be free from our bondage to do what? Free to run to our Father and to enjoy him forever, to savor his goodness. So we have been redeemed so that we can worship God. And God wants his redeemed to enjoy his absolutely stunning, 
amazing, breathtaking, awe-inspiring glory. That is what God is after, is for us to see who He is, be overwhelmed by it, to drop to the ground and say, I just want more of your presence. I just need you to have our hearts so engrossed and so wrapped up and so thrilled by Him that we just respond to this overflow of knowing and enjoying Jesus. And He does it by showing His grace to save us and allowing us to experience His presence. And so this whole section, Exodus 33 and 34 to the end of Exodus, and if you back it up from Exodus chapter 1, from the very beginning, the whole book, it is about God saving a people for his own glory so that they can enjoy his presence. And so let's look at these three primary truths in this chapter and the following, specifically about God's presence. The first truth is the barrier to God's presence. So think of it as the hindrance, what gets in the way of, what prevents. So the barrier to God's presence in our lives, that is idolatry. And so idolatry is the barrier to God's presence. And we see it in verses 3 and 4 that we just read. He says, you, you take them, you go to a land that's full of milk and honey. So you take them to the promised land where it's blessed and fruitful. He's like, but, he says, I will not go up among you. I'm canceling the reservation. You can go on the trip. I'm not going. So God says, you don't have my presence anymore. I call a travel agent. I cancel. Not going. You go to the promised land without me. Now, remember the context here. God made a covenant with them, a pledge with them to be faithful to them. And they promised to be faithful to God. And very quickly, they broke the pledge. They broke the covenant. They committed spiritual adultery very early in the marriage, so to speak. And so they broke the covenant. They violated, they offended God. And so God here is not pleased. And God cannot be in the presence of sin. He says, I would go, but I would consume you. My holy fire would consume you because you're sinful. God is saying, I cannot, I will not be in the presence of sin. And so their idolatry was the barrier to having God's presence with them. Remember what an idol is. This is from last week, brief review. An idol is what? Anything that's more important to you than God himself. That's what it is. And so an idol is what you turn to in order to find things like significance and security and fulfillment and pleasure. Where we turn for those things, that's your idol. And so when we give our hearts to something other than to Jesus, the result every single time, this is important, when we give our hearts to something other than Jesus, the result is always a loss of God's presence in our lives. God would say to you and to me, I will not go up with you when we give our hearts to idols. And to not have God's presence because of our own sin is absolutely devastating. It's disastrous, and the Israelites knew it. Even in their drunken, orgy, stupor from the night before, they get it. They understand this not good. No es bueno. 
not good. They're aware. They're, it's clear to them that this is disastrous. It says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. They were mourning this. They're like, this is horrible to not have God with us. And verse 7, if you look at this in context, is an absolute tragedy. Verse 7 is horrible. Because what it says is that Moses went, it says, outside of the camp. It says, far away from the camp. And he pitched a temporary tent that Moses called tents of meeting. This is not the tabernacle. This is not the gold, beautiful, glorious tabernacle that was meant to be in the middle of the camp. This is not the tabernacle. This is another temporary tent that has been put outside of the camp, far from the people. And only Moses is there and no one else. There's no priesthood at this point. There's no place for the sacrifices to be done. No place for the atonement to happen. This is bad. There are no more plans for the tabernacle. God is saying, that's history. I'm done. I'm changing my plans. I'm done with these evil people. They broke the covenant. That's it. No more tabernacle. No more presence. No more forgiveness. No more hope. I'm done. This was not a bump on the road. This was the end of the road for the Israelites. This is not good. No tabernacle, no presence, no hope for them. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we could very easily fall into a very similar mentality. Many people, and no one in here, of course, but other people, not in the room today, there are those who would want this, who would welcome this, who would say, I want God to exist. That's a good thing, that there's a God up there. He takes care of things like the universe. He takes care of things like the planets rotating around the sun, and he takes care of all the big stuff out there. I'm glad there's a God. Sure, kudos, tip of the hat, God exists. Good, good for him. But he doesn't impact my life one bit because I control my life. I dictate my agenda and so I want God to exist out there. I don't want God in here in my life. I want God out there. Now, I want God to be around just in case I have a problem. In case things don't go very well or I really mess up somehow and I need someone to bail me out, I need someone to go pray to that, that will always answer me, I want God out there to answer whenever I have a problem but I don't actually want his presence every day in my life. And it's very subtle. It can happen so easily. Let me ask you, just think about this, just for a second. If you had everything your heart desired, I mean everything, whether for you it's looking very attractive, losing all those kilos you're trying to lose, or whether it's having more money or the house or having a wife or having a different wife, or another husband, or better kids, or reconcile relationships, or whatever it is that troubles you, your job, your career, whatever in your mind you think to yourself, if this was right, if this, whatever this is for you, if this were fixed, I'd be happy. If only this, this, and this weren't annoying me, then I'd be great. What would happen if you had all of it? The looks, the car, the money, 
the trophy wife, the whatever, whatever you want, whatever your heart would desire. What if you had all of it and then more? All of it for eternity, but no God. Would you be satisfied? Some of you think, yes, I would. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. Because you were made for so much more. You weren't made for those things. You were made for Jesus. You were made for God. You were made to know him and to enjoy him and to live in his presence continuously, forever. Glorifying God and enjoying him forever. That is why you exist and only he can satisfy your soul. And so we can very subtly look to other things to satisfy us. And when we do, we're turning to idols that would threaten to enslave us, and we instantly lose the presence of God in our lives. Remember from last week, from the last chapter in Exodus, the greater the good it is that you have in your life, the more likely you are to look to that thing that person to satisfy your deepest desires and needs. So the greater the blessing, the greater the risk that you're going to make that an idol, to look to it for your fulfillment. We must not set our affection on things of this world because we will find ourselves much like the Israelites. When we do what they did, we have the same results in our lives every day, which is loss of God's presence and absolutely devastating results. And so the barrier to God's presence in our lives is our own idolatry, our own sin. Second truth, number two, the requirement for God's presence. So first we saw the barrier. The barrier to it is idolatry. Now what is the requirement in order to have God's presence? A mediator. In order for us to have God's presence, we need a mediator. So the only way to be reconciled, the only way for us to enjoy God's presence is to have someone to mediate for us. Now, the word mediator, kind of a big word. If you don't know what it means, I'll define it for you. Mediator is a person who intervenes between two parties that are in conflict. And so this is like an ambassador or like a go-between, someone that represents. And so a mediator goes to resolve the conflict between two people or two parties with the goal of reconciling both people or both parties to one another. So he goes in, he mediates. He goes in between to bring them together again, to reconcile the broken relationship. And so in order for us to be reconciled to God, to have his presence, we need a mediator. And you see that in Exodus 33, verses 8 through 11, it describes Moses as a mediator. So a pillar of cloud, God's glory descends upon this tent of meeting, and Moses goes in, and it says that he talks to God face to face like a friend talks of a friend. Now that's an idiom. God doesn't have a face. He's a spirit. But this is describing Moses spoke to God directly. So Moses only saw the cloud. That's what he saw was a cloud, but he heard God's voice. But he spoke to God face to face, meaning directly. 
But can you imagine being an Israelite? Just think for a second. You know you've sinned. You know you worship the golden calf. You know you don't deserve God. You don't deserve his forgiveness. You don't deserve his presence. And you know that Moses, the one guy who can possibly help you, is in the tent. And you wish that you could have someone tell you, how is it going? How are the negotiations coming along? How, how is it going with the ambassador? Are they, are they striking a bargain? Or is it, is it looking good? Is it looking bad? Where's the play-by-play? And so there, can you imagine wondering what is happening in that tent? But God tells us. He gives us a peek into the tent. And he lets us know what was happening between Abraham, not Abraham, sorry, Moses, as a mediator between the sinful Israelites and God. Broken relationship. Moses goes in as a mediator. Let's read what's being said in the tent. Verses 12 through 23. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not that you're going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is incredible, just remarkable. Moses as a mediator between God and the Israelites and their broken relationship for these rebellious people, and Moses interceding on behalf of them. Moses, you can hear that he's desperate. I mean, he's pleading. He is begging. He's so desperate for God's presence. He says, he says, show me your way, and that I may know you. He just so desperately wants to know God and know his ways. And then he says, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Now, God says, I'll go with you. And it seems like Moses wasn't paying attention. And he says, no, you have to go with us. Well, God may have said, I I just said I would. Pay attention, Moses. It's not like that. Because when God first said, I will go with you, in the original, that is a singular. I will go with you, Moses, not with everyone else. 
I have found favor in you, not the rest of those rebellious, idolatrous sinners. And so Moses isn't having it. He was like, no, not just me. Everyone, we're your people. You promised you have to save us for your glory's sake, not just me, everyone. You promised. This is who you are. You are gracious. You have to go with us. We need, we're desperate for your presence in our lives. And he says, God, if you don't go with us, I don't want to go. It's not worth it. There's no joy. There's no point. If we don't have your presence, I'm not taking one more step. Step in the wrong direction. I don't want it. I don't want it. I just want you. That's all I want. And your glory to be manifested. And it's done by redeeming these sinful people. And so you have to do this for us, God. You have to. And so what does God say? He says, I'll go with you. There's a key in this conversation that we can't miss as they're having this conversation. As Moses says, what makes us distinct, if not but your presence? So what makes believers in Jesus different from every other faith or philosophy on the planet? God's presence. Emmanuel. God with us. You see, every other religion says, do this, do this, do this, follow these steps, and you can reach up and reach God. And this is the opposite. It says God reached down, and he has given us his presence. He sent his son down to save us who could not save ourselves. This is radical. What we have is the very presence of God, his spirit, literally inside of us. What makes us distinct is the presence of God's spirit in our midst. This is radical. No other faith says this, God's presence in us. And so God is pleased. God is pleased with Moses. He is He has found his favor, he says. And so he says, okay, I will go with you because of the intercession, because of the mediator. And so God shows mercy in going with his people. But you you can't miss this. This is very important. That God here is showing mercy for the sake of the mediator. And so the one here who had God's favor is interceding on behalf of of the others that are hopelessly lost. This is a shadow that is pointing to the ultimate reality fulfilled by Christ. This is pointing to Jesus. Because Jesus found favor in the eyes of God, and he represented us being fully God and fully man. And so he died on the cross, paid the redemption price as the intermediary, as the mediator, And now Jesus has reconciled the broken relationship between man and God. And so the reason why you have this story unfolding with Moses is because God is foreshadowing the gospel. He's foreshadowing Jesus, interceding for us and God's favor, resting upon the Son, and not because of the Son's righteousness transferred to us. God accepts us, and He approves us. Of us, and we now have God's favor. Not that we earned it, 
but because Jesus earned it and then offers it to us. And so God sees you and he sees someone who's been forgiven because Jesus died in your place. He is the mediator. So Jesus is the ultimate, final, better, true Moses, the mediator to reconcile us back to God. This points to the glorious gospel of Jesus. And so we know that the barrier to God's presence is our idolatry. We know that the requirement for us to be in God's presence is a mediator. This points to Jesus ultimately. Number three, last truth is what is the result? What is the result of God's presence? The result is worship. That's the result of God's presence in our lives, is lives of worship. And so what we see here is Moses wanted proof. He says, prove to me that you're going to really go with us. Show me your glory. He wanted to see God's full manifestation of his perfections. He wanted all of it, the weight, the full weight of God's glory. He wanted to see God in all that he is, in all his glorious splendor. And God is pleased and says, yes, I'll show you. I have mercy in whom I have mercy. But he said, the problem is that I'm holy and glorious and you're a sinner and you'll die. You can't see all of me. You can't see my full glory. And so he says, I'll hide you behind a rock and I'll pass before you. And he says, and I'll put my hand to cover so you don't see all of me. And then I'll move my hand and you'll get a glimpse of my backside but not my face. Now, God doesn't have a face or a hand or a backside. He's a spirit. God is spirit. He doesn't have those. And yet, God is using this human language to communicate to Moses and to us that Moses could not, would not be allowed to see God's full glory. It's too much for him. Yet, he would allow Moses to get just a glimpse, just a passing glance of God's glory. That's what he would allow him to have. And so Exodus 34 describes how Moses cuts two new stone tablets, gets up the next morning, and he goes up Mount Sinai with this excitement to get a glimpse of God's glory like he promised him in the tent. Let's pick it up there. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 9. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For this is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Astounding. You know what God is like? Here's a summary. Remarkable, God-inspired words of God showing who he is, and he gives them his name. And so to know God's name is to see his glory. 
To know God's name is to see his glory. And what is he like? He is merciful. He is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving sin, and yet maintaining his holiness by judging sin. And this is what we see here. This is glory. This is who God is. And there's no God like our God. And when we experience his presence, what happens is our hearts are overcome, overwhelmed, and we recognize his immense value. And the next five chapters, chapters 35 through 40 in Exodus, basically what it describes in those chapters is the building of the tabernacle. Because towards the end chapter, chapter 34, God renews the covenant. He restores the relationship. He promises to be close to his people, to dwell within in the middle of them once again because he is gracious. And because of the favor that he had for Moses, who represented the people, God is gracious. This is pointing to the work that Christ would do for us. So that the tabernacle is built. And if you read Exodus 25 through 31, which is the instructions for the tabernacle, and then you read 35 through 40, it's like reading the same thing. It's quoted, basically. It's verbatim, nearly. And so it's a repetition where God is now saying, so here's the instructions in, in 25 through 31, and in 35 through 40, it's completed. So we will read through that because we covered that a couple of weeks ago. So that the, the tabernacle is completed, and then God is gracious to dwell with his people. And so let's read what happens at the end of Exodus, the last paragraph, chapter 40, verses 34 through 38, on the tabernacle that's just been completed. Exodus 40, 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tents of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tents of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the ta- over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So God's glory fills the tabernacle, as it would later with King Solomon, how his glory would then fill the temple. Just like now, the Holy Spirit fills every believer with the same Spirit of God that filled the tabernacle, that will later fill the temple, fills you. You are now the tabernacle. You are now the dwelling of God. And so when we gather together and we sing that there are 10,000 reasons for us to praise God and we sing His praises together, we're doing it because the same Spirit that indwells in me indwells in you and our hearts are knit together and the Gospel has brought us together and we love our Savior and we yearn for His presence. And so we sing to Him together as His people. And he is dwelling within us. Literally. The Spirit of God dwells in us and with us. 
This is just mind-blowing when you read Exodus. And what you see is that we see ourselves. We see ourselves in Exodus. We are those sinful, idolatrous people that need God's presence in the desert. Abu Dhabi is a desert. We're not in heaven yet. This is not the promised land. If you haven't noticed, I'm sure you have. This is not the promised land. That still awaits us. We read earlier from Psalm 16, verse 11. It tells us that in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Do you want fullness of joy, and do you want pleasures forever? The answer is yes. We all do. You need God's presence. Idolatry is indeed the barrier. Jesus, the mediator, brings us close to him so that we can have his presence. And when we have his presence, we worship. In verse 8, we just read in Exodus 34, when Moses gets a glimpse of God's glory, he's dropped to the ground. All he can do is worship. That is the natural response. And so what happens to Moses as he was in God's presence and as he was worshiping, he was transformed, his heart was changed. He was changed. Remember back in the beginning, reluctant, scared, arguing with God, didn't want to do it, impulsive, killing an Israelite, exile for 40 years. This man who was not that impressive, now in the end of Exodus, he is foreshadowing Jesus. This is remarkable. What happened to Moses? How did he change from chapter 1 to chapter 40? What happened to him? God's presence. He was in God's presence. Being with God changed him completely. The work of the Holy Spirit is what changed Moses. And that's the same reality of what changes you and me as being in the presence of God. And so if you are not a believer in Jesus, if you have not come to the end of yourself, where you repent of your sin and say, you alone are my king, Jesus. If you have not done that, you don't have the Holy Spirit. You don't have his presence. You might see it among others, and you might get emotional at church, but you don't have the Holy Spirit. You don't have his presence, and so you will not experience transformation. You won't. You can't, because you need a new heart, and only the Spirit of God can do that. And you can pursue the self-help, pop psychology, all you want. It won't change your heart. Only God can do that. And what I would want for you is to experience pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. But that happens when we give our lives to Jesus. And those of us that are believers, the key here is when we experience his presence is in our devotional time. That's where it starts. And then you can sense his presence all day. But if you don't spend time reading his word and remembering how you are a sinner in need of grace, if if you forget that, you won't read the Bible, you won't pray much, and you will begin to drift away from Christ, and you will not experience his presence or the power that comes with it. I'm not talking about a checklist, oh, read, check, done. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about begging God to help you To say, God, I don't even want to read this some days. Will you help me? Give me a desire to read your word and to pray. Ask God to help you if you don't desire it. He will give you one. And then you you commit faithfully to read. And I promise, 
It'll change you. That's the way God works, through his word, as the spirit testifies to Jesus. So God has a plan. He has a plan to display his glory as he assembles a people for himself. He wants us to be together, to be just stunned by his glory. And the overflow is lives of worship where we then tell others. See, that's the key here. As we close, not just today, but Exodus, is what he wants is that we'd be so overwhelmed by his mercy and grace that we can't help but tell others and say, hey, you too can experience joy and forgiveness. You too can have this if you will come and see what God is doing, doing through his people, through the power of his spirit. You can have joy. Jesus awaits. You tell others. And so that's my plea this morning is if you're here, and for you this is an intellectual thing, a religious thing, that that's not God's design. It's his presence in your life for his glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we are truly in awe of your majesty and your splendor. We praise you for making it possible for us to have your presence because of your mediator, your son, Jesus. I pray for anyone in this room that is far from you. I pray that they would repent and place complete trust in you, that they would come near and experience your presence and joy. I pray for those in this room that are following you but have maybe drifted here recently. Pray that they would run back to you. For indeed, you have mercy and you're slow to anger and you abound in loving kindness and you forgive for thousands of generations. We praise you for your mercy, for your grace that shows your glory. We need you and we praise you that you are with us. And we pray for your son's sake, for his kingdom, for his glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.